Lord Jesus, thank you that you give us a firm foundation in which to build our lives. We do look at the world around us and our own personal lives and see lots of things that are not how we would want them, or we see lots of things that indicate our utter lack of control of what's happening, whether for us or in the world around us. But we're thankful, Lord, that we can trust you. Jesus, this, this world that is broken and the challenges we face in it, that's not a surprise to you. You said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have you as a firm foundation in which to build our lives. And I pray that today as we open Scripture together, that you will open our eyes and hearts in fresh ways to how we can build our lives in you as our foundation, how we can trust in you, and how we can walk by faith and not by sight. Because the things that we see around us don't always make sense, and the things we see around us don't always indicate what really matters and what is really trustworthy. But we're thankful, Lord, that we can walk by faith. So today, please do work in our lives through your spirit and your word to increase our faith in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So today we're continuing our series called Living by Faith. And so if you're following along in the Bible, I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. If you did not bring a Bible but would like to follow along, which I always encourage us to do, you can uh, grab a Bible from the pew in front of you. In Hebrews 11 in that Bible is on page 1,211, page 1211. And then also I encourage every, everyone following along in the Bible to put a bookmark over in Genesis chapter 12, back near the beginning of the Bible. In the Pew Bible it's on page 10, because we're going to be flipping back to Genesis 12 in a few minutes. But we're starting in Hebrews 11. Now today we're talking about how true faith requires surrendering to God. Surrendering to God. Now... We, we are probably all familiar with the term surrender, but probably typically more in a military-type sense. But the word surrender and the concept of surrendering can apply in all types of, of realms of life, even in our relationship with God. Let me give us a, a definition of surrender as we get started here. Surrender means to stop resisting an opponent and instead submit to their authority. So it's the idea of stop resisting, submit to the authority of another. It means relinquishing control. It, it means stepping out of the driver's seat. It means letting go. In our relationship with God, there's a natural part of us that wants to be in control. Because we naturally like to be the ones in the driver's seat. We like to be the ones calling the shots and trying to control what's happening. But surrender in our relationship with God looks something like saying this. God, ultimately, even though I may want to be in control, not my will, but yours be done. And so again, today we're looking at the fact that true faith requires surrendering to God. But, again, we all have that natural tendency to want to control things ourselves, to want our plans and our preferences and our priorities to be what comes to pass. Naturally, if, if this notebook represents our plans and our priorities and our preferences, we naturally want to hold on to those plans and preferences and, and priorities really tightly, like with white knuckles. We don't want to let them go because we want our way and our plans and our preferences to be what happens. So our natural sense is to hold tightly to those things. But surrender, on the other hand, holds our plans, preferences, and priorities more with an open hand and a closed fist. Essentially saying to God, God, I trust you. 
Yes, I have my plans. Yes, I have my preferences. Yes, I have things I'd like to see work out in a certain way. But ultimately, Lord, I know that you are trustworthy. And so I know if I hold them with an open hand, or frankly, even if I don't, there may be some of my plans or preferences that that you take away, or you give me something different. But God, whatever happens, I know that you are trustworthy. So I'm going to hold all my plans and preferences and priorities with an open hand, surrendering to you. That's a picture of what surrender is like. And today we're going to see a, a really amazing, powerful example of surrendering to God in the person of Abraham. We're going to encounter Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, then we'll flip back to Genesis and see some of the original accounts. But first of all, I'm going to read for us Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. It says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that had foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So you have Abraham and his wife and his extended family, and they're all living in one place. And then God calls them to move out of that place and move to a different place. In fact, verse 8 says, Abraham obeyed when he was So the idea of being called by God was important here. And we see the original call back in Genesis chapter 12. So if you're following along in the Bible, I invite you to put a bookmark in Hebrews 11 and then turn back to Genesis 12. And this call that God gave to Abraham at the beginning of Genesis 12 is really key in understanding much of what happens in the rest of Scripture. So Genesis 12, 1 and 2 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And so when God said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, he's basically saying, Abraham, leave everything that's familiar to you and then come follow me. Now, I have a question for you as we talk about this concept of of moving from a place that's familiar, a place where there's family, moving to a different place. How many of you have either children or grandchildren or parents or grandparents who live more than 30 miles from you? Raise your hand. Parents, grandparents, children, grandchildren, more than 30 miles from you. That's actually, I mean, that's the majority of us. This is the majority of people in America, really, because here in America, in the 21st century, distance doesn't really mean all that much. You know, cars can travel us, you know, hundreds of miles just in a few hours. Airplanes can take us farther and faster. Distance is not that big a deal because, you know, even if we're a decent distance, even 30 miles or even 100 miles or, or even 400 miles from family, we're still going to be able to see them on a regular basis because of modern abilities to travel and we can communicate with them via phone or email or text messages even more frequently. But back in Abraham's day, it was very different. To move in that manner from one place to another, even 30 miles or 100 miles, would essentially be like cutting ties with your everything in your past. But we see here that Abraham surrendered familiar places and people 
and even his future in order to follow God. Now, in Hebrews 11.8, there's a really interesting phrase that I think might be easy to gloss over, but I want to highlight it for us. Hebrews 11.8 says, Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. So Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. And for some people, this would probably be really exhilarating. And some people would look at this as a great adventure of just going out and, oh, what's going to come next? We don't know, but let's go live that adventure. But I think that for most people, especially those with type A personalities and those who like to plan ahead, this would be terrifying, wouldn't it? I mean, to move away from familiar people and familiar places and to go in a direction and to a place that you don't know where you're going. That would be terrifying for most of us. I mean, cause all kinds of anxiety. Yeah, Abraham went out, it says, not knowing where he was going. And again, today, for most people, when they move from one place to another, especially a significant geographical distance, they know where they are going and why they're going there. I think of myself when I was in my 20s, I had several big moves of significant geographical distances. I think of how I transferred to a different college that was 400 miles from my family. And then after I graduated from college, I moved to Fargo, North Dakota, which was 665 miles from my home where I grew up. And after a few years up in Fargo, I moved from Fargo down to Chicago and moved another 600 miles. Those were some big moves. Yet in each one of those moves, I knew where I was going when I moved, when I left the place where I had been living, and I knew why I was moving. I had researched the place to which I was moving to. I had actually already traveled there to scope out the place. I had met a few people in those places. I knew exactly what my living situation will be when I get there. That's how it typically is in today's world when we move from one place to another. But for Abraham, it was not quite like that. Because it says that he went out not knowing where he was going. But there is a key here to understanding what was happening. It says that Abraham went by faith. By faith. And that faith is not just some generic hope of, oh, I hope this works out. No, it's a a concrete faith in God. He trusted in God. Genesis 12, 1, the original call to Abraham. God said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So God took responsibility to show Abraham where he should go. Abraham didn't know where he was going. But he trusted God because he knew that God knows where he was going. So God's basically saying, although you don't know where you're going, Abraham, I do. So trust me. Come, follow me. So God was inviting Abraham on the adventure of following him by faith. And this is very similar to how God calls people throughout the Bible. And even today, he calls us to surrender what is familiar to us, surrender control and follow him. I think of Jesus. We see an account in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus comes to this guy named Peter. Peter was a fisherman. And Jesus says to Peter, come, follow me. And it says that Peter, along with a couple of his fishing buddies, says they left everything and followed Jesus. Now, do they know where they're going exactly? Do they know what was going to happen? No. 
They didn't know. They surrendered their future to Jesus because they trusted him. And then similarly over in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus comes to this guy named Matthew who is a tax collector and said to Matthew, follow me. And it says that Matthew left the tax booth and followed Jesus. These are all examples, Abraham and Peter and Matthew, of surrendering their, their, their circumstances that they know, surrendering their future to God and following him. And it's really the same for us today. Yeah, Jesus is not walking around physically where we can you know, see him and literally follow him from town to town. But it's the same mentality of surrender and submitting to his leadership in our lives. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. So it's the same mentality for all of us who want to be Jesus' disciples of surrendering control. That's what it means when it says deny yourself, take up your cross daily. It's the idea of dying to ourselves, surrendering our own plans and preferences. And Jesus says, come, follow me. That's giving him the driver's seat of our lives. Now, let's go back to Abraham. Abraham is following God. He's left the, the land where everything was familiar. He's following God into a promised land, but he doesn't know quite where he's going, but he's following God. Now, God had made a promise to Abraham that Abraham's descendants would become a great nation and be a blessing to the whole world. But there's a big problem here and that Abraham and his wife Sarah were both very old, very old, and they had no kids. So how in the world were they going to become parents of a great nation who would then bless the entire world when they have no kids and they're very old? Well, listen to Hebrews 11, verse 11. It says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she is past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now, I feel like it's a little bit generous to say that Sarah had a great faith, especially right when she found out that she was going to be a mother in her old age. It's a little bit of a stretch, I think, when you look historically at what took place, because because when Sarah first found out from God that she was going to be a mother, and God told her, you know what, you're, you're going to give birth, she laughed. And it was not just a, a happy laugh, it was a laugh of unbelief. Because she was looking at it from, from a human perspective. It did not make sense how she as a super old woman could give birth to anyone. I mean, it didn't make any sense. And then you, you fast forward a little bit, and so she had this idea that Abraham went right along with where they thought, oh, let's jump to, jumpstart God's plan a little bit to have children. And so, Abraham, so Sarah said, hey, Abraham, why don't you take my, my servant Hagar and impregnate her, and then maybe that's how God wants to build this great family. So they jumped ahead of God's plans. Abraham went right along with that, and that was not God's plan. But I will say also, as I look at these, these struggles at times to believe God and these struggles to follow God's plan perfectly, it kind of encourages me as well, not just because I want to look back at failures of others and laugh at them. I don't want to do that. But I think it gives us some hope because sometimes it's easy to put certain people in the Bible, especially in Hebrews 11, on this pedestal just saying, wow, they are amazing people of faith. I can never, ever be like them. When in reality... 
Even the people in Hebrews 11 are normal people like you and I, normal men and women who have their own struggles. And you look at Abraham and Sarah, they definitely had a number of different times when they sinned royally. And it's recorded right there in Scripture. They struggle at times to really believe and follow God. Yet God still worked through them and they are still models of faith, even though they are normal people like us. And that can give us encouragement. Yeah, we struggle at times, but we can still be growing in our faith in God. And then, when Sarah was 90 years old and Abraham was 100, they had a son, Isaac. God was faithful. It was a miraculous conception, miraculous birth. They had Isaac, this promised child. Now, let's jump ahead to verse 17 of Hebrews 11. See what happens next. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was, te- when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So this is uh, just an account of what took place back in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22, we see the account of Abraham's faith being tested by God. It says in Genesis 22, verse 1, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So this is kind of crazy, isn't it? I mean, it it's almost seems appalling when you really understand what Abraham is being asked to do. There's a special child who's been born to them. His name is Isaac. And God is telling Abraham, take Isaac, your son, whom you love, and take him up on this mountain and offer him as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering, which in the process would kill Isaac. It's a command from God. It certainly would not have made sense to Abraham. I mean, it doesn't really make all that much sense to us either. Yet God told Abraham to do this. And it showed Abraham's level of surrender to God and trusting God that he was willing to do that. He still loved Isaac deeply, but he's willing to do that because he trusted God. He obeyed God because he was surrendered to God's will. I mean, he still had sin in his life. He still didn't do everything perfectly. But I would say at the same time that his level of surrender to God was really off the charts at that point. And we may be wondering, how did he get to that point? Because remember, he's, he's a human being. He's a normal human being. So how did he get to the point where he could trust God and surrender to God to that level of even offering his beloved son as a sacrifice? Well, that points to an important principle that still applies to us today. It's that surrender and faith are like muscles that need to be exercised in order to grow stronger. Surrender and faith are like muscles. You think about our physical muscles. And think about a person for a minute who lives a very sedentary lifestyle. They don't exercise their muscles all that much. And if they live a very sedentary lifestyle, their muscles are going to be relatively weak. 
And then imagine that person who's lived a very sedentary lifestyle suddenly has to do something that uses their muscles in a big way. They have to run somewhere all of a sudden, or they have to lift a heavy object. What's going to happen in that moment if their muscles are weak? Odds are good their muscles are going to let them down. I mean, they may pull a muscle, may tear a muscle. They may just not have the energy or strength to do what they need to do. But if they had been exercising, if they'd been uh, strengthening those muscles over time, then their muscles would be ready to do what needs to be done when that time comes. It's the same way in our faith, in our surrender to God. Those are like muscles that can be built up over time. And you look at Abraham, I mean, he was called this crazy thing that didn't necessarily make sense, but God still called him to it. And his faith muscle in God and his surrender muscle to God had been built up over time so that then when that massive test of faith came, he was able to trust God and surrender God, surrender to God, even though it didn't necessarily make sense to him, but he knew he can trust God. And I think about just the idea of how, you know, many people, if they had lesser faith, less surrender to God, they would have even looked in God's face and said, absolutely not, even if God told them to sacrifice their child like God told Abraham. But Abraham was able to surrender to God because his faith muscle and his surrender muscle had grown through the years of seeing God's faithfulness and of surrendering to God in the past. And this same, same idea can apply in our lives as well. Many of you are aware, perhaps all of you are aware, that I've been having some eye issues recently. About a year ago, a little bit over a year ago, my retina in my right eye tore and detached, and I had a couple surgeries for that. And then two weeks ago, the retina in my left eye decided to tear and detach as well, and I had a surgery for that about a week and a half ago. And the reality is my eyesight is not all that great right now. My eyesight long-term in my right eye after those couple surgeries on a really good day, is about 2060. 2060 is, is it's decent enough to function, but it's not good enough to drive. And the eyesight in the eye is kind of weird in, in that I can't read a sheet of paper. I can't read a white computer screen um, with, or even a regular book with my right eye. And then you have my left eye that just had surgery a couple weeks ago or a week and a half ago. And that eye, currently to help it heal, temporarily has oil filling the eyeball, and oil is hard to see through, so I, I can see a full range of vision with that eye, but all, everything from this eye is really, really blurry. I'll have another surgery in about three months to take out that oil, and then vision should be restored a significant amount there. But still, the future of my eyesight is uncertain. I'm not really in danger of going blind anytime soon, but still, the quality of the eyesight is very much in question. Right now, I can't drive. And, and you may be thinking, well, if you, if you were in my situation, you may be still be tempted to want to drive. I'm not even tempted to want to drive at this point because I know my vision is so poor, I could not drive anywhere near safely. And frankly, even my future after the second surgery of ability to drive is uncertain. And that, that's a hard thing. <laughs> I'm only 42. And to think I might be done driving for the rest of my life, that's a hard thing to wrestle with. And I think, you know, one thing that definitely helps is uh, that I'm pretty optimistic in life. I'm, I'm very flexible in, in most parts of life. So that thing, that, that definitely helps. I've heard a lot of people say over the last 
couple weeks, you know, they just really admire my faith, my positivity through all this. And again, the flexibility and optimism helps. But I also point to two other things that I think really help in terms of my outlook and perspective on all this. One is I recognize that if I lived almost any time in human history except for right now, I would be completely blind at this point. I mean, even if I lived even, you know, 30, 50 years ago, I'd be blind at this point because on the day of each of my surgeries, each of the first surgeries on each eye, I was blind in that eye. I mean, my right eye, completely black on the day of surgery. And that sight was not coming back without that surgery to fix it. And left eye was very similar to that. I know that without those procedures, without living now, I'd be fully blind. And I will tell you that some sight, and sight that is actually reasonably functional, is so much better than no sight at all. So I feel like a, a big part of my attitude right now is just, you know, feeling gratitude for the sight that I do have. But one other thing that I think has really helped in this process is I've been just mentally and spiritually processing struggling eyesight for about two decades now. Because back when I was 20 years old in college, I had LASIK surgery on both eyes, and my eyes didn't recover very well from that. I had some major problems with sight when I was in my early and mid-20s. And it was frustrating. It was scary. I had a lot of anxiety about the present and the future. It was just hard. And I was wrestling with God about that that struggling eyesight and about worried about the future and um, am I going to be able to drive and all that type of stuff. But I will say that that time, that that just the time to process and to wrestle with God and really come to that point of surrendering more and more of my eyesight and my future to God, what happened then was that through the years, it built those faith muscles in God and helped me surrender more and more to God. And so, yeah, there are still times where, you know, things are kind of sad or things are frustrating or I kind of wish it was a little, I certainly wish it was different, but I can't control the circumstances. But I've learned, you know, I can still trust God and God's still going to be faithful. God's still going to provide and that helps a lot. And I think if I were just dealing with these things for the first time, and if I hadn't built those faith and surrender muscles over the years, this would be much more challenging for me now. But having built those faith and surrender muscles, especially as it relates to eyesight, helps a lot now. Because faith and surrender are like muscles that can be built and strengthened through the years. So that way when challenges come, and when things happen that we don't like, or when it comes time just to surrender a certain part of our lives to God, then we'll be more ready to do it than if those faith and surrender muscles were weak. And so this raises an important question for us. Do we trust that if we surrender to God, he will provide? Do we trust that? Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to a question, do we trust God? But do we trust that if we surrender to God, that he will provide. And I've been learning over the years to trust God with my eyesight. And I've been learning it in new ways even the last couple of weeks. And I'm thankful for God's provision. I'm thankful for the sight I do have. I'm thankful for modern technology like iPads. I bought an iPad last week because, you know, I can put my notes on here and have a black background with white font that I can read. I'm thankful for those things. I know, you know, God is providing, even over the last couple of weeks, people to drive me around. And I mean, all kinds of provision. Do we trust that if we surrender to God, he will provide? Because that is really the principle that got Abraham through that test of faith. 
Hebrews 11.19, it says, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, such a test of faith. The reason that Abraham was able to surrender to God in that manner is that he trusted that God will provide because God is faithful. He knew that even if Isaac dies, in some manner, God's still going to be faithful. And in fact, even perhaps resurrecting Isaac from the dead or doing something, Abraham didn't know what God was going to do or how God was going to provide, but he knew God would provide because God had promised to provide offspring for, uh, for, for Abraham and Sarah through Isaac. So we knew, you know, somehow I can surrender to God because somehow God's going to provide. It's the same thing for us. Do we trust that if we surrender to God, he will provide? Because if we trust him, it makes surrender so much easier. So I think of surrendering our future to God, which realistically we should do because we can't control our future anyway. I mean, two weeks ago I stood up here and, and said, you know, none of us know what's gonna, knows what's going to happen this next week. We may have our plans, but we can't control it. And then I was a living testimony of that, of um, having my retina detached that week. But that's the reality. But in surrendering our future to God, do we trust that he's going to provide for us? Or are we going to live with a sense of anxiety and, and just feel like we need to control things? Which is ultimately an illusion. Or can we surrender freely and experience his peace, knowing, God, I don't know what the future holds, but I know you are going to be faithful and provide. Or when it comes to surrendering grudges to God, you know, someone's wronged you in some way, can you surrender that grudge to God, trusting that he's going to take care of whatever needs to be taken care of rather than you needing to hold on to that grudge so you can take vengeance in your way? It's a matter of surrender and trust. I think of finances and giving generously to God's work. In the Bible, it sets forth 10% as a sort of norm or a baseline for giving to God's work. Yet American Christians on average give 2% of their income to God's work through the church or through missionaries. Why that gap? I think a major part of it is the lack of faith and a lack of surrender to God because we like to hold on to things. We like to do things our way, including with finances. And the question is, do we trust God that he will provide for our needs and provide for those things even that we want if we surrender our finances to him? It's a question of, do I trust God? And then that leads to another application question for all of us. What is an area of my life where I need to surrender control to God? You know, we all have ways that we need to surrender more. What's an area of my life I need to surrender control to God? You know, maybe it is money or grudge that we're holding on to very tightly that we need to then hold with an open hand. Maybe it's our schedule. I mean, we as 21st century Americans can get so busy with so many things that are decent things. Maybe we need to hold that schedule with more of an open hand and say, God, I need you to help me reorganize my schedule in a way that is more honoring to you and actually helps me prioritize what really matters most in life. Maybe it's surrendering your sense of identity where you've been so focused on trying to please other people and what do other people think of you? When in reality, you just need to hold that identity with an open hand and say, God, I want to trust you to build my identity in the way that you want to. You know, maybe it's a sin you need to release to God, a sin of lust or greed or pride or gossip. Maybe it's how you handle interruptions. You know, this is something that God's been 
uh, working on me and over the last few years is just, how do I handle interruptions? Because so much of life is about interruptions that come your way that we don't plan into our schedules. But how we handle interruptions is really a pretty good indicator of how surrendered are we to God. Because there are a lot of good things that can happen in the interruptions. But if we are just holding our schedules and our plans like this with tight fists, we're going to look at schedules as an enemy that needs to be defeated, overcome, ignored, stuff like that. But how do we handle interruptions? Are we willing to actually let interruptions be a way to minister, teachable opportunities, a way to, to serve family or friends or acquaintances or even strangers? Maybe we need to surrender our schedule to God so we can handle interruptions in a way that honors him more. And what happens as we begin to surrender one area of our life to God and and that that surrender muscle grows and strengthens, then it starts to create a snowball of surrender where more and more areas of our life get surrendered to God where we say to him, not my will, but yours be done. And I think it is important to recognize that this is ultimately a spiritual battle. It's not just something that we work hard to do to, to, to... try to live the Christian life under our own strength. It's ultimately a spiritual battle. Galatians chapter 5 talks about that battle, how we have our sinful nature inside of us that wants to be in control, that wants to do things our way, that wants our preferences and our plans. But then you have the Holy Spirit, God himself, who wants to work in, in our lives for his purposes. And how there's a battle inside of us between our sinful nature and the Holy Spirit. And the call for us is not just to work harder in our spiritual life, but to surrender more. To say, God, I need to surrender to you. I can't do this on my own. I want your power through your Holy Spirit to come and work in me and through me. I surrender to you. That's really what the Christian life is about. I mean, the Psalms say, be still and know that I am God. It's the idea of surrender and trust God. Lean on his strength and his power rather than our own. And that's, that's the basis of the Christian life. And really, when you look at surrender in this way, surrender is very life-giving. Because I think about how much anxiety so many people live with when we're worried about the future and we're fretting about, can we get these plans right and do this and do this and this just the way we want them to go? We live with so much angst when we try to control everything. But when we are able to surrender to God, it's very life-giving. And yeah, we take our hands off the wheel of our lives, but it doesn't mean our, our, the car of our life is driverless. Then we surrender to God, let him be at the wheel. And, and this enables us to hold everything with an open hand and then to be more open to what God wants to do in our lives. And yeah, there will be things that come into our lives that we wish were different. And frankly, that's going to be the fact whether we're surrendering to God or not. The surrender, though, helps us to handle those things better. I mean, I think of my eyes again. If I could write the, the, the story of my life, I would not include eye problems into my life. Because it would be nice to live without eye problems. I, I don't have that ability. But I will also say that God has reused those eye problems in my life to shape me in so many ways that I'm not sure if I would have been shaped in those good ways without the eye problems. Whether it's in terms of character or trusting God, uh, relationships I've been able to form that have been in some way or another through those eye issues. I even think of the last couple of weeks, I've had a number of people giving me rides to various appointments and stuff, and you know, that'll continue even to meeting people in hospitals or stuff like that as a pastor. 
But what a blessing it is just to be able to talk in, in, in the vehicle while we're driving. And I think of other ministry opportunities in the future that will arise even because of the eye issues. And that's what God can do as we surrender to him. He can redeem even those challenging things in life for his purposes. And so living life surrendered to God is actually a very life-giving way to live because it helps us to experience a peace and a joy and a hope and a confidence and a purpose that we can't get if we try to hold everything with tight fists. You look at Abraham. I mean, he, we know his name now. He, he, he had such an impact on history, but that would not have happened if he held everything with a closed hand and said, nope, I am not leaving this place. I'm not leaving these people. I am not going where you're calling me to go because that's too scary. That's too hard. No, instead he surrendered it. And God led him on an adventure that, yeah, had some hard things in it, but ended up bringing great glory to God and great purpose to Abraham's life. And yeah, our lives, we don't know what the future holds, but we can surrender to God because he is faithful and he is good and he is trustworthy. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are good and faithful and trustworthy. We, we need that. We need you as a foundation to lean into because as hard as we try to control our lives, there is so much that's beyond our control, so much in this world that's beyond our control, but we're thankful, Lord, that you are trustworthy. And so I pray that you will work in each of our lives, wherever we are spiritually, whatever our background is, whatever our future holds, help us to trust you, Lord. And I pray that we will not be depending on our own strength and our own understanding, but depending on you, that your spirit will work in us and through us to shape us in the way that you want to, to make us into the men and women who you want us to be, and that in that process that you will be glorified, that we will find a joy and a peace in you that is unavailable when we try to control things ourselves. So Lord, when you say, come, follow me, I pray that you will empower us to do so, not in our own strength, but in yours. We thank you for your love that you graciously come into the challenges and the messiness of our lives and our world to redeem us out of it, to give us a hope, a purpose, and a future. We pray these things in your name. Amen.